Unsee the future. How to encourage the more hopeful human tomorrow. Episode 22, Democracy. Part 1. Well, not you, obviously. You can't deny the will of the people, mate. If you or they can be sure what it is, or who they even are. How is the future looking to you right now? <laughs> yeah, uncertain. Exciting, isn't it? Unsee the future continues, whether you voted for it or not. Democracy is a loaded word right now. Almost a loaded gun. How do we agree the practices that define it? Who has the corner on it? And if it feels more like a kidnap to others of us, what are their demands? Politics. Gah, it's the big problem of any age, right? What say can the people really have in it? Well, it's surprising how much people have found a way across the centuries, even in ancient feudal times. Let my people go. But it's all sped up rather considerably with technology. And more people than ever are taking part in it. 900 million eligible voters in India going to the polls this April, and nearly 200 million also doing so in Indonesia. That's a lot of participation, isn't it? And paperwork. The mechanisms of democracy, the trends of it, the demands upon it, the identities it both invokes and creates, what are they right now? Because if we're to stand a chance of dealing with the existential crises of a planet under severe human pressure, the humans had better work out how to engage with everything after a generation of dwindling desire to do so. If engagement was tough during the somnambulous neoliberal and technocratic years, the European Union years, the Clinton years, it'll be an impossibility in the nightmarish deepfake future, surely. And the point is that if ordinary us raised our democratic expectations as the era of the printing press grew, and then even more so with the advent of television, where on earth do you suppose that leaves us in the digital age? And where might it take us in the biological? In the status panto of our times, do we even understand what democracy is anymore and why we want it? I'm Timo Peach, and I endorse this message. What was the message? Theatre is the essential art form of democracy. And we know this because both were born at the same time, in the same city. Says Oscar Eustace, artistic director of New York's public theatre. Greece, the 6th century BC, the city-state of Athens. Right there, the idea that power should flow from below to above, from the consent of the governed to the governing, and not the other way around, that little world shaker of an idea emerged then. And right then and there, at just the same time, so did another one, the concept of dialogue. The ancient Greeks loved a bit of lifestyle, parties and storytelling. And in the festival of Dionysus, son of Zeus and Hera, and a lot more artistic and fluid in many ways than macho old Apollo, the whole of Athens would turn out to the Acropolis to be entertained and to get religiously whammoed. But in the early plays that were premiered at the festival, the protagonists would always be monologuing to the crowd, preaching the story as the possessor of truth in world, if you like. 
Legend has it that a chap called Thespis came up with the idea of turning the protagonist 90 degrees and adding another one, and have them talk to each other. Suddenly, as Eustace puts it, they weren't possessors of truth to the audience, they were just guys with an opinion up on stage. The thesis of that, he says, is that truth can only emerge in the conflict of different points of view. Truth must be inferred from a conflict of viewpoints. Debate, claim and challenge, bringing together opposing views in order to find new truth. Together. The Agora was the antithesis of the arena of war, despite how bloody the Commons always has been. Democracy is, for all the conflicting politics, about empathy and trust, trying to ensure we feel it and earn it for each other. In the heated squabbles getting ever more cooked on the stove of our media channels today, we have forgotten what democracy is. I think we might have done. The coming together of conflicting stories to thrash out new understanding. Creating leadership that is, in a big sense, ground level up. As the will of the people fails to find decision-making in clumsy referenda and populist rallies and cultural counterinsurgencies across the world, arguably in the shadow of some very entrenched hierarchies, are our times today calling for a new leadership to come from the ground up? Leadership from us, stupid lot. Everyone. Can this make any practical sense? Well, I'm beginning to suspect so, but only with some new stories of us to go with some next-level technology to express them. And interestingly, from taking theatre out to everyday people, as his work has, removing it from the elitist traps of art a bit, democratising it, if you like, Oscar Eustace says what we learned is that people's need for theatre is as powerful as their need for food or drink. I wonder if our political struggles right now in this historic moment together on Earth could be summed up in one of two words. One might be the emotional truth of our politics today and the other the practical implication. Either could be the tidy headline right now, but one of those words perhaps represents where we are and the other what we need to do about it. Because firstly, I think the spirit of our age politically two decades into the 21st is circling around the word recognition. In a claggy soup of noise, with everyone finding their voice all at once, all the different movements essentially all saying their own version of me too to a huge spectrum of what are really honestly tribal hurts, injustices, fears and hopes all highlighted in new ways by being thrown together, cranking off each other. You could say they're emerging in response to localised versions of the same fear. The fear of drowning in change and disappearing. Well, I'm not fearful, mate. I know what I think. Yes, yes, I know. So do I. But I wonder if we're collectively beginning to deal with some kind of cultural PTSD from our experiences in a world like the one we're in. Future shock. That 20th century coined phrase now thrown into the tinnitus-inducing echo chamber of digitally connected human life in the 21st. Overload quietly implying the collapse of civilization under all the noise. Perhaps. But I think there's another word that describes the same challenges of our living together in the flooded digital global village in a more practical way, and it's the real challenge back to our political expectations now. Engagement. When do we engage with politics, and when don't we? And ever more pertinently, how could we?
What is the trajectory of democracy today and how might we hope to interact with it in the future? What on earth is the likelihood of making a difference as one person among seven billion and rising? And why would we imagine we could? The problems are too big, right? With so many culture snipers on our roofs, better to just keep your head down. Well, tell that to a Trump supporter, to a Brexit voter, to a gilet jaune marcher, to a vegan. Because there's a problem with resigning ourselves to cynical silence, an emotional one. It gnaws away at you. Any sense of lostness or helplessness, that lack of meaning, or certainly fairness, doesn't it? But the digitisation of everything has done more than give us more channels to consume sleeping drugs with. MTV may have put my generation to sleep before it found its name, but if the tube was a brainwave transmission, YouTube is a dialogue. Uh-oh. Everyone can talk back now. Everyone. The internet is an accidental social revolution, comrade. Of course it is. Because as you already know, my fellow libertarian, liberal, socialist, proud, patriot, freedom, justice warrior, the 21st century challenge to democracy isn't digitising voting systems and managing shifting influences of businesses and services going online. It's managing the true human vulnerability of wherever we live. Because when we've truly adopted somewhere, we move in emotionally. And that now means the internet. We've invested everything migrating to the World Wide Web of Feelings! It's one thing to dream up utopian future ways of living. It's another to live them. We can plan all the highways, flows and roundabouts we like to ensure the smooth movement of goods and services. But when humans move in anywhere, they move in emotionally. It's why good politicians are always good storytellers. Our fantasies of the future across a century of science fiction have frequently tended to look conspicuously technological, because technology is a hard-shaped deliverable that's easy to picture changing the way we do things. Not just the tools, but the very jobs. Tech is a definite new shape in your living room, with a definite price tag attached if you want it, which you always do, of course. And so when we picture the future, we always lob in jetsony future junk to illustrate our sense of progress. Our fetish for such a definite sense of it is what has us banging on about automation so much even now. The bots, man! The bots are coming! So you could say that consumerism has unsurprisingly been the cultural force fueling globalisation thanks partly to its apparently more accountable thinking. Numbers you can tally up and statistical aims you can qualify with terribly grown-up seeming spreadsheets of units of tech sold. It's been hard to argue with the logic of it, it seems, even in its sometimes fantastical lack of holistic accountability. As a result, it is consumerism that's arguably done the most to shape our popular jetpack expectations of what the future should look like, which is essentially lots of upgrades and a regular fashion churn of products to put in the bin in the quest for a better tomorrow. But fashion, fad and the engine of consumerism heavily encouraging it all does in the end bank on something a lot softer and more nebulous than numbers and boxes and even bits of data. Our damn fool feelings. Our damn fool human feelings always form the deeper truth of our living. Surrounded, motivated and diverted, as they always ultimately are, by emotional context. 
the states of mind we are always breathing in and out and sharing between us in everything we can't help empathetically doing. Today, there's a big emotional context influencing our choices like a global weather system. The macro atmospherics of a big new political mood emerging, one in no mood for the globalized status quo. Populism. And from Brazil to Turkey, the Philippines to Russia, Italy to the US and back home to Old Blighty, what it seems to be saying is, all this shopping choice doesn't add up to any real control, does it? Instead of branding us with your affectations and values, we'd like some say over who we think we are. Now, in the glorious cultural renaissance that is Brexit in my home country of the UK, the word fascist has been thrown around a very actual lot in our profane slanging matches, sorry, democratic debates. And in many polite and vaguely lefty minds like mine, the rise of nationalism is an oft-repeated phrase that seems to really mean a series of attempted fascist coups. Which has many of us wondering, how soon before the books are being burned in the streets again? Or maybe the Kindles? Those not already tidied up by Mary Kondo, anyway. But nationalism is not de facto fascism, according to futurism philosopher-guru Yuval Noah Harari. Nations are communities of millions of strangers who don't really know each other, but thanks to nationalism, we can all care about one another and cooperate effectively. This is very good, he says, a little utopianly. In fact, he asserts the idea that John Lennon got it bigly wrong, suggesting we all try to imagine a world without borders. Far more likely, without nationalism, we would have been living in tribal chaos, he says. All you need is not simply love. A smooth digital passport recognition system doesn't half help the world also get on. And only the more desirable, get in. For us on the half-empty globalised high street, the tell is, surely, how comfortable your sense of identity is with your multiplicity of identity. You are many things all at once, you fascinating individual. You're someone living in a home, a family, a locality, a nation, a region and a planet as the undoubted genetic and cultural product of multiple races, with many different tribes of allegiance beyond these in taste, interest and experience. The day a new political leader tells you to lay down all that of you, if it is in conflict with a flag, is the day you probably just voted in an actual fascist. Fascism is what happens when people try to ignore the complications and try to make life too easy for themselves, Harari says simply. If the nation demands that I betray truth and beauty, then I will betray truth and beauty. The great beguilement when it works, he says, is convincing you that you are more beautiful than you really are. Manipulation. Democracy is meant to be about us manipulating the national interest as a demos, right? We the people, our will, making the politicians our representatives serve our interests. How did that work out for those who voted to leave the EU? Because for this to work enough, it presupposes we know who we are and what we most want, some overriding unity of identity largely subserviating other squabbles within a nation's cultural borders in its people's heads. The overriding characteristic of modern populism is that it sharply divided hearts, minds, families and nations along brand new cross-cutting lines to the old tribes, and it's flummoxing our usual language for politics. Someone somewhere apparently blew a whistle, and millions of us knew to suddenly run to different ends of the political playground, 
leaving a rump of us who can still just afford skiing holidays to sleep in apres bars in the middle, wondering where half the family disappeared off to. Using Brexit as an example, writing for the RSA, Anthony Painter says even when they make a decision, it's going to leave us with problems that have not been addressed. When the decision is made, a narrative of betrayal will set in, perhaps even amongst whoever's won, especially if they wish to evade responsibility. Loss and disjuncture, schism and grief will be powerful forces, he says, and he believes that no one should underestimate the risks. There is oxygen, there is fuel, all it awaits is a flame. The triumphalist will be the fool, and in all this the fundamentals will remain. For all the talk of the will of the people, there is no such thing. The very notion in these times is an elaborate and seductive populist deceit. There will be creative ideas for new democratic mechanisms, and they are a thoroughly good idea, but something deeper is also required, he suggests. After decades of heightened inequality, increasing culture wars, deeper tribalism, geographical inequality, alienation, economic insecurity and generational disconnect, have we become incapable of imagining a different future for society? Maybe that's the answer, he says, rediscovering our collective imagination. But there is a thing to also notice. For all the genuine worry... Another characteristic of today's populism is the lesser role upfront grand wizards appear or don't appear to have been playing compared with historic times. You can name a fair few dictators and dog whistlers here, obviously, but they do seem to be trying to cash in on something, not conjure it. So-called populist movements seem to be just appearing all over the place with few superstar leaders. Who's been sending the memos? France. They love a bit of sitting on tractors blocking the high street, right? A proud tradition of social republicanism and a marrow deep commitment to lifestyle leads to a lot of strikes and marches and intellectual riots, right? All reasons to ruddy adore les Francais, in my opinion, stupidly two-dimensional as this racist summation obviously is. In May 1968, in a global mood of restlessness with the status quo, France underwent a popular mutiny that felt so close to a civil war at one point, President Charles de Gaulle himself supposedly actually fled the country for an embarrassed afternoon. It was a series of student protests against the rise of capitalism's consumerist and imperialist inequalities that spread to a general strike which shut down the country's economy and is said to have been a turning point for the socialist nation's modern identity. Beguilingly, in the retelling of this, the May 68 unrests spurred an artistic movement with songs, imaginative graffiti, posters and slogans, as Wikipedia puts it romantically. Ah, to be part of something so meaningfully merchandisable today. <coughs> Occupy. Well, today you bet there have been a few new protests about the failings of our economic systems. And France seems to have led the way in this again. I'm sure in the end with no less poetry. Or merch. Les Gilets Jaunes. Those big gatherings of people in the yellow hive's vests of staple economic jobs that keep the machine working. Marches of discontent against the machine, wanting to really be seen 
that have supposedly gotten so bad after months of recurring protests, often descending into damage and violence, that for the first time soldiers normally on anti-terrorism patrols are to be deployed outside public buildings in order to free up police, says the BBC's Hugh Schofield. So who are the JG? We're not just French people who are moaning. We're fighting for our rights. We just want the tax system to be more equal, say Laurie and Elodie, both in their mid-thirties. The local France meets them and speaks to a selection of typical people joining the marches in Paris and other major cities, describing jobless millennials, cash-strapped pensioners and small business owners, as well as militant anti-capitalists. To get to our age and have to beg, it's mad, says 70-year-old Paloma. This is the first time I've ever protested. Our leaders are completely detached from realities, says Hubert Bertrand, 53, who believes that tax and social security bills in France, among the highest in Europe, leave him unable to give his staff a pay rise. We should have entrepreneurs, shopkeepers and artisans running the country, he asserts. These are people who feel they've been squeezed by globalisation, says Sophie Pedder, Paris bureau chief of The Economist, talking to Clara Young for the OECD. They feel the fabric of social life has been hollowed out, she says. Often, people who put simply depend on cars because of where they live in the kinds of semi-rural areas poorly served by infrastructure, fuel prices were the flashpoint, if that's not an explosive way of putting it, when President Macron hiked petrol costs to tackle climate change, which hardly makes a helpful association apart from anything else. Under the surface of the inflammatory headlines, is there a sense of abandonment manifesting in parts of modern France? Clara Young quotes a statistic that 10% of national regions in OECD countries that lost the most jobs after the 2008 crisis were those that had shifted their economies towards goods and services that aren't internationally tradable. We appear to need globalisation, all right. But what do we do if it feels like it's increasingly just not somehow working for us. How do we engage? And with what? Because mostly, the Gilets Jaunes are not jobless. They're people saying they consider themselves to be doing everything right by the system, working hard, and yet they're feeling more squeezed than those much higher up the economic ladder doing less concrete jobs for the country. It's not about creating jobs per se, but some sense of prospects and mobility about creating the conditions to encourage people to realise more potential and feel recognised as part of everyone's success as a result. Pretty core human community needs. Over here, the copycat yellow vest marches have tended to be characterised as full of right-wing nutjobs, not least because they don't tend to produce crafted manifestos of vision either, but lists of things the marches are simply against, or apparently for, depending on their less-than-elitist English. But look at the lists and you might find around the social justice button-pingers of anti-migrancy that you might be sympathetic to more points than not, my good liberal. As Adam Nossiter put it in the New York Times, in France the yellow vests say they want more and they want it sooner rather than later. Lower taxes, higher salaries, freedom from gnawing financial fear and a better life. Those deeper demands, the government's inability to keep up and fierce resentment of prosperous and successful cities run like an electrified wire connecting populist uprisings in the West, including in Britain, Italy, the United States. And while some of this is connected to right-wing political parties, the Zhejie illustrate that it doesn't have to be. 
The problem is just how much emerging fascist groups are mixed in with genuine injustice and a lot of echo chamber myth, especially that of the white working class underdog. No racial groups get special entitlement to misery when it comes to globalisation, mate. How do we get to all this? Well, give us 20 years and hindsight will begin to make it obvious and set the story in our telling. But certainly all over the democratic world, it's often said that something has culturally removed Westminster, Brussels, Paris, Madrid, Washington further than ever from the ordinary person trying to make ordinary headway. They just don't look like they even need the voter. But perhaps the problem more prosaically is just how stratified everything of us now is, with, as one person said to me recently, such a vastness of difference between one level of rich and the next that even millions of the rich are feeling poor. Getting to here, for a good 30 years in the modern West, the financialized neoliberal years, you could argue we've been both especially distracted and increasingly disillusioned with the idea of real change. An engagement such as it is has turned into a very insular, physically lazy act, late-night post-shift thumb work. But as the 21st century has opened up, it looks like we're beginning to realise this obviously gives us new ways to disrupt, if we want to. People power like never before, potentially. New alliances possible. It's just... Along with all that, in our quest to slay the dragon of the status quo, we're finding a kaleidoscope of new perceptions of what the status quo even means. In the middle of this new cloud of human emotional life emerges much quicker threads of thinking, like a human hive processor, capable of analysing the system. The old system. And we appear to be in the early stages of waking up to what's wrong with it. Kind of fundamentally. Is populism one aspect of liberal democracy's cultural vision vacuum? Inspired empowerment seems in short supply for millions of us feeling like we're propping up economies and societies that don't value us, in the face of massive changes apparently looming to threaten all our ways of life. Ever more rapid social and economic shifts that seem to want to crowd us right out, even. Asking us to do the dance of democracy as we've known it every now and then, but in the end, to a very limited meaning for you and me. The swelling, spilling over reaction to all this has taken whole political systems by surprise and awoken others of us rudely. From the Arab Springs to Occupy to Brexit and Old 45, we've begun sidelining some out-of-touch politicians and making ourselves heard with rapid organisation working around them. Think of Sudan, today. Think of Algeria. Which all sounds rather democratic, bottom-up. But the thing is, right in the middle of this fledgling, peoply, digital democratic protest, where have we been placing our reinvigorated hopes? Because if elected officials can be out of touch, what about corporate business leaders? People whose influence is publicly without any democratic accountability, but whose economic influence dwarfs some nations. Because you bet the most powerful mandate you've given anyone with your support is to the least democratic or accountable groups on the planet. And it looks like you've barely even started mobilising for them.
here we pause our jolly but terrifying look at 21st century democracy unfolding around us and where it might be going. Next time in part two, we'll be looking at just that. What are the mechanisms that might help us achieve something a bit more inclusive? Is it even possible? And what else might we be missing along the way? Discover more links and video and reading on the blog of this post at unseethefuture.com. And be the first to get the future in your inbox. Subscribe to the Momo Memos at unseethefuture.com forward slash amigos. Listen, read, ponder and share. Do. Unsee the Future is a Momo Tempo production. Obviously.